Okay, so I believe God has given me a word that he wants to prove tonight what his love is all about, the intention and the motive and the desire behind his love. So I'm not going to prove it, but the scripture is going to prove it. And by proving it, we're going to look at one key word that I believe best describes what love is really all about. And every time I say love tonight, you can, oh, you're the man. Every time I say love, you can interchange that word with God. Every time I say God, you can interchange that word with love. So if I say love, I mean, if I say God, I mean, all right, we're on top of it. Sweet. So let me just tell you first what love's desire is, and then we'll prove it by looking um, at some scripture. Love's desire is to be eternally intimate in relationship with people. So you could put that. God's desire is to be eternally intimate in relationship with people. And when I say that word intimate, I know a lot of us think physical touch, some form of gratification. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being known and knowing the other person. So we're talking about really knowing the person heart to heart, core to core, who this person is. That is love's one desire, to truly know the other person and to be known by that person. Um, to prove this, we're going to look at a word called forgiveness. If you're taking notes, you're going to want to write that word down and underline it because it's a very significant word, and we're about to see why. Uh, before we get into forgiveness and the definition, let's first go back to our beginning and look at why is forgiveness even needed? Where does forgiveness come in? So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, book, the beginning of the book, Genesis, Adam and Eve, ch- chilling in the garden, kicking rocks, having a good time. God says, hey, enjoy, explore, have whatever you like, do whatever you like. Just don't mess with that forbidden tree. Don't eat the fruit because you will surely die. Of course, you know, ladies, curious, you know, Eve takes a bite. That's where we get. She was the first one. That's where we get ladies first. Um, So so then Adam goes ahead and falls along and sin comes in, right? And we, we know this. I'm pretty sure most of us know this. Sin comes in, and now because sin's on the scene, there's now separation between us and God because God is holy. He's perfect. He's pure. He cannot have intimacy with sin. It brings separation. So now there's a gap. And since there's a gap between us and God, essentially being apart from God means death because he's the source of life. So we're cut off from our source of life. We're no longer eternal We're no longer intimate with him in a relationship. So love's number one desire is now no longer able to happen because of the result of sin. And a lot of us know this. And a lot of us, if you're you're like me, you grew up in church and you're used to hearing the word sin. You're used to hearing the the term hell. And really, we're not going to talk about much about hell or sin tonight. Because when you really talk about God's motive and what he's all about, sin and hell have very little to do with it. And we're going to discover that by looking at this word called forgiveness. So just so we're clear, we made a mistake. It wasn't God. We messed up. We fell short. We disobeyed the commandment of of not eating of the tree. We sinned, sins in the world. We're apart from God. Now, here's what forgiveness, the dictionary tells us forgiveness is, is the act of parting a mistake or offense. So So one could say that God forgave us after we sinned. We know that God forgave us. That's, that's what he did. He forgave. He pardoned us of our mistake. He pardoned us of our, our, our sin, our, our failure in eating of the fruit and the many failures that came after that through each and every individual life. But actually, the scripture says he didn't just forgive, but he went through a greater action than that. But he actually endured the consequence of that mistake. So not only did he pardon us, but he said someone has to take fulfillment of this punishment 
And we know John 3.16, he sends his son in to do that for us. Now, this is a big deal because for a lot of us, we grew up in church and, and all across America. I, I have found, I'm only 23, but in my 23 years of trotting around the earth, I've, uh, I, I've seen and I've experienced that everyone seems to have this idea that God is the God of perfection and that's what his aim is and that's what he's all about. And, all, and I haven't said anything so far that's probably new to your minds, but the hope is that it downloads from the mind to the heart tonight. Because I think if we're to be honest, every time we encounter a tough situation and we slip, every time we fall, every time we make a mistake, usually there's two things that we do. I'm talking about Christians. And two things that I do. I'm speaking to myself, too. Uh, I remember growing up as a kid, uh, Wednesday nights were, were the youth group nights. And, uh, man, if I messed up that day, if I had sinned, if I had done something wrong, my first idea was to escape. As soon as that worship music came on, like, like it did just a few minutes ago, I was out. And the best place I knew to go, the safest place I know to go, still the safest place today, men's restroom. So I would go to the men's restroom, and I would fake like I'm going to go number two, and I'd find a stall, and I'd plant myself for the next 15 minutes. And then I would come back in. And I, I don't know about you, but I guess that, that kind of got out because after a while I started going to the restroom and, like, all the stalls were full. And I'd be, I'd be peeking over, hey, uh, you pooping or did you just sin? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, I, but, I mean, that's, that's just our mentality, right? Since the beginning, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, what they do? They, they ran. They didn't want to confront God in the situation. Or the number two thing that we do that, I'm, that I've done for a, a large part of my life is I'll come before God and I'll get down on my knees, and I just begin to repeatedly just cry out, God, please, 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 please forgive me. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. I should have I done better, this, that, the other. And I give a million apologies. I start asking for forgiveness, begging for forgiveness. And the crazy part is, it's almost, and I grew up in church my whole life, and the crazy part is, if, if I would just take a minute to reflect on the scripture, forgiveness happened a long time ago. According to the scripture, it happened before Dwayne Coleman was even a name. Unless anyone's over 2,000 years ago, it was before any of us were here. So forgiveness already took place. So where does this mentality come from? I'm going to give you another childhood experience. And uh, in case we're recording this or you're taking notes, this is not to be put on Facebook. Uh, This is all private stuff, okay? Um, I remember um, I grew up in Clovis, and was the only one of, of my dark skin there. But uh, I'm from, my family was from L.A., so every summer we'd go to L.A. And I remember one time we were playing basketball. Uh, I was playing with my cousins and stuff, and this is going to be hard for you to believe, but growing up as a kid, I was uh, very scrawny, and I had kind of a larger head for my body. Um, it took me a while to fill out like I am now. Um, and it was, it was really hard growing up um, because all of my other family members were really big, tough, you know, black guys that looked good, you know, and uh, I was kind of different. But we were, we were playing basketball, and we were, we were in Inglewood, which is a little bit of a rough area, and I'm a soft guy. Um, so, I mean, my favorite movie is Runaway Bride, so it just kind of tells you I'm not, I, I, yeah, it was tough growing up. So, we're, I'm here in Inglewood with my cousins. We're playing basketball, and, and I'm at a young age, and I remember we were hooping, and I'm giving it my all. And I am just doing terrible. I mean, every time I throw the ball, it's going over the backboard. I, I am just, I'm just trying to hit the rim. You know what I mean? So I'd be like, man, this rim sucks. You know what I mean? But, I mean, what do you say when you airball? I don't know. I, I, don't, know which, I don't know. There's not an excuse for that. That's, you're obviously not good. 
And um, it got to a point where one of the guys said, you know what, man, you just got to get off the court. You got to go. You're not good enough to play here, bro. And I remember my cousins were laughing, and I walked off the court and uh, came home. My parents said, what are you doing home early? And I was like, oh, I'm just hungry. That's all. You know, uh, I didn't have the heart to tell them. And I remember I went back to Clovis, and every time I played basketball since then, my natural reaction every time I was engaging in a basketball game, if I made a mistake, the first thing out of my mouth would be, my bad, dude, my bad, my bad. Dude, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it won't happen again, it won't happen again. And the reason was, is I was trying to convince them that I was aware of where I messed up, and it will never happen again, because I feared what happened in L.A. would happen there, and I'd be kicked off the courts. I was afraid that I'd be removed from the team. And for a lot of us, we have this ideology of God that he's all just amped and ready to remove us from the team. That every time we mess up, he's like, okay, you're cut off, that's it. And if we would just stop and think and not allow the world to pollute our minds, we would see very clearly through the scripture, God is doing everything he can to keep you on the team. He's looking for every way possible to get you onto the team. The last thing that God would ever want to do is to have to remove you from the team. But we have this ideology that God's all about perfection. If God was about perfection and us being perfect, we are way behind schedule. I mean, it is terrible. I I mean, if you look at my life, I'm pretty sure if we looked at each other's lives, I mean, we're nowhere near there. But the scripture actually doesn't teach us that God so loved the world that he died so that all men would be perfect. No, but that, that they would have eternal life with him, that they would be able to once again walk with him. And God doesn't like things in, in temporal. He likes things in eternal. So he says, I don't want relationship with them for 80 years, but I want it for eternity. So I sent my son so I could reestablish my one true desire, my original intent, which is to be eternally intimate in relationship with people. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to take a look at a scripture called Luke Chapter 15, verse 11. We're going to dissect this a little bit. We're going to go through 11 through 23. It might look long, but it's really not as long as it looks. If you could just say amen when you're there, that way I know. All right, good. You guys know where you're going, huh? Luke 15, verse 11. And I'm going to stop at certain points just to make sure that we understand what's going on. And let me give some background. This is the most insane, most ridiculous, outrageous story Jesus has ever told that's completely made up and is not real. Okay? And you're like, whoa, Jesus made up a story? What, he lied? No, he didn't. It's not that he lied. It's, it's a made-up story. He's giving an example. It's, it's actually made up but realistic at the same time. It's made up in the fact that the characters are made up. There's no specific characters that he's talking about. But this is a story Jesus is giving to the Jewish people. Pharisees as well are, are here as he's giving this story because he's trying to illustrate what the Father's intention is towards man. And a lot of people know the story is the prodigal son, and I really despise that title because it gives too much focus on the son when the story is really about the dad. And I hope if we can leave here today understanding that this story is about the father, I think it's going to do a lot of good for us in our hearts. So we're going to read the story about the father, and, and as we read, understand that the father's character, when he says father, it's talking about God. And it says, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. Okay, first error. This is Jewish culture. 
So the way this works, this is, this is Jewish, Middle Eastern culture, very foreign to what we're used to. But the way it works over there is the oldest son would get the inheritance. And he would get it after the father died. Well, the, in the case of the son would get anything after the father died, he'd get one-third compared to the older son's two-thirds. And in Jewish culture, no son would ever dare ask his dad such a question. It's, it's just foolishness. They're, they're, they're too strict. They're, they're too obedient. They're all about the rules. No Jewish son would ever do something like this. So you can kind of imagine on the scene, Jesus is giving this story. Have you guys ever seen a movie? And you're just like, man, that's unrealistic. <laughs> Guy flying. <laughs> Nobody can fly. You know what I'm talking about? You see a movie scene. I, I don't want to say any movies because then I might say a movie like, oh, that's a bad movie. You shouldn't be preaching. I don't know. But... But just think of a movie, <laughs> just think of a movie that you've seen that's really unrealistic. You're like, dude, there's no way that could happen. Well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's giving an example of a story, and they're just like, dude, there's no way. What son would do that? He's pretty much asking his father to drop dead so I can get my inheritance. And the story continues, but it says the father gives it to him. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Okay, this becomes a big deal because for, for the Jewish people, they're all about cleanliness, they're all about perfection, and to go off to a foreign land is just is, is not a cool thing because it's dirty, and actually when you came back, you'd have to clean off your sandals because you, you, you don't want to track in any of the filth from the world back in onto the holy land. So it says, after he had, oh, I'm sorry, I had to skip the part. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. If we were to read um, further tonight, it, w- it would tell us the wild living as he was spending his money on prostitutes. Uh, verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of the country who sent him to the fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So I'm pretty sure we all know Jewish people don't like pigs. You know, that's just, that, that's a big no-no. Couple, so so here, here he is, and, and the Jews are listening to the story, and they're just like, oh my gosh, all the stories this guy has said, this is where he's losing it. This is wacko. No Jewish son would go off and spend his money on prostitutes. If he, if he was going to get the money, why would he? That's, that's unclean. It's filthy. This is ridiculous. And then he spends it all, and now there's a famine. And if you know anything about biblical famines, I mean, it's intense. I mean, people are, are doing some pretty nasty, harsh things. And so there, now he has the worst luck. I mean, this is just the worst luck that, that a man could possibly have. And now he's at the point where he's eating amongst the pigs, He's in the slop. He's in the nastiest position that they could ever fathom for a Jewish person to be in. And two things are really big in the Jewish culture, or really in Middle Eastern culture, which is honor and shame. You, you try to do everything you can to remain in the honor and do everything you can to stay away from shame. This son has reaped, reaped shame all over his life. He's wearing it like a name tag. And so in verse 17, this is huge. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. He says, when he came to his senses, another way you could phrase that is when he came to repentance. All repentance is, is is a changing about starting in the mind, a changing direction. 
changing direction from where you're going before 180, the opposite way. And he says, what led him there is he remembered how his father had hired men who had food to spare. Back in these days, the servants, the slaves would get just the bare minimum. But his father gave them more than enough. They had enough to spare. So it's his generosity, it's the kindness of his father that just led him back to repentance, which Paul actually quotes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Verse 18, it says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. And here's the part where it gets big. This, this is for us because the son is a representative of all of us in this room. We went off. We sinned. We were separated from God. The son, Jesus is telling the story. Everyone in this room, we represent that son. Now, God is about to come to the scene and show us the true nature of where he's at so he can break this false ideology of how we view him up there waiting to kick us off the team. It says in verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So much is just wrong right there. If the Jewish people are hearing this, there's so much that is wrong. Because they just heard this most ridiculous story about a son who brought nothing but shame to himself. And the way it would work if a son returned back home, he would no longer be a son of the family. That's why he says, when I go back home, I'll ask if I can be a hired servant. In other words, he would have to pay restitution. He would have to work as a slave and maybe one day earn back where he was. It's pretty crazy how it works back there. So there, and then it gets more crazy because it says the father saw him while he was a long way off. I don't know if you know, but the only way you see something from a long way off is when you're intentionally looking for it. You don't, you don't accidentally see something miles down the road. You have to be intentionally looking and expecting. I'm expecting something to come this way. So it actually shows God is showing us the heart of the father. He's not actually looking to see when you mess up. He's looking to see when you come home. Come on. Come on. Don't make me have to take, my, take off my sweater. Come on. He said, he said, I'm not waiting for you to make a mistake. I'm waiting for you to come home. I know that's talking to somebody. Come on. Then he, then he says this. Then he says, while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. How many of you have seen a Middle Eastern person ever run? And I don't mean that as, as a racist joke in any ways, but if you go to the Middle East... Their cloth doesn't give them ability to do. They don't dress in a way to run. They don't run. They glide, kind of. You know what I mean? They just kind of maneuver. <laughs> so, so, so what Jesus is saying is what the man would have had to do with the father. If he would have saw the son from a long way off. He would have had to pull up his clothes and jet it out there, showing all his hairy little legs as he's running through the city, which would have done what? It would have brought shame to the father in front of everybody. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, you had shame on you, and I joined you in it, and I humiliated myself in front of everybody, made myself a spectacle in front of the whole universe to demonstrate how much I care for you. I had no shame. He said, I had no shame. Pulled up his cloth and jets it through the city. And then he embraces his son. And that's huge because the son would not be allowed to embrace in the Jewish culture his father at that point. There's a couple of ways he could have gone about it. He could have 
put him in the public square and people would have been able to come and make fun of him and ridicule him for, for, for a time. Then he, maybe he would have been able to work and serve his father and perhaps get to a, to a place where he could kiss the ring on his father's hand. But to be embraced by his father in such a way as it's recorded in the scripture by a hug and a kiss says restitution is already taken care of. There is no restitution. There is nothing for you to do. You already did it by coming home. Your duty is done. Now just remain. If you're taking notes, write that down. Your duty is done. Just remain. Then it says in verse 21, the son said to him, Father, remember he prepared a speech, right? He was ready, but I got to give my speech. Okay. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Father pays no attention to the statement. But the father said to his servants, quick, with haste, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a finger, put, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his, feet, on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Jesus says a story that is just off the chain off the charts on anything that these Jewish people could ever have fathomed. As one of those directors that makes a movie and we go, whoa, that was before their time. They weren't ready for that. The Jews were not ready for this story. They cannot believe the audacity that a father would allow such a situation to happen. They're looking at the situation, especially the Pharisees in the back. What were the Pharisees saying? What? Are you kidding me? Son should be killed. His blood should be sprinkled all all across the land. This should be a demonstration for everyone else. If you ever act this way, you're done. That's a lot of us think because we think God is the God of perfection. He desires perfection out of me. And if I'm not perfect, then I failed. And I got to give a thousand apologies and ask for forgiveness. Otherwise, I could be removed from the team. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. This isn't me proving it. This isn't Dwayne Doctrine. I'm just... Raise your hand if you got your Bible and your Bible said what I just said. Your Bible says, anybody else? Did, did I make that story up? It's in there, right? And I, I, didn't, I didn't write the Bible. The Bible's been here way before me. This is God's word. So God is saying, this is my heart for the people. My desire from the beginning was to be with them. It's crazy. Even when you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 through 8. I say that kind of fast, but it's the love chapter. And a lot of us heard, heard love is kind, love is patient, keeps no records of wrongs. If you just look at the definition of love, it's not made for perfect people. You don't have to be patient with perfect people. You don't have to forgive perfect people. There's no records to keep hold of for perfect people. God has a love that is built specifically for you. Our duty wasn't to come before him perfect. It's something we're not capable of on our own. But he said... The very message Jesus preached, he said, repent and turn to God. He says, change directions from where you're at and come to God. And Paul breaks it down further and says, it's that kindness of God. It's stories like this. It's revelations like this of understanding God's kindness that awakens us to the truth and the reality of who he is and draws us into him. And as we're drawn into him, then he is faithful through his Holy Spirit to make me a new person that looks more and more like Jesus every day. But all in all, it's not me. It's all him. My only duty is to come before him. And we're going to end with this. It's, uh, 
it, it's really significant that we understand this, this concept of, the, of love, the, the reality of how God loves us. Because we, we really are unoperational in the kingdom of God until we have love. Matthew 17 teaches us, um, in verse 21, it says, or Matthew 7, 21, talks about how there will be those who prophesy, who do miracles, who do this, that, and the other, but they won't enter the kingdom of God because he says, they knew me not. I didn't know them and they didn't know me. There was no relationship. They had the power, but they didn't have my love. Because First John teaches, if you know God, you know love. If you know love, you know God. Love is where it's at. Love's where it's at for me, and then this love, what it does, this love begins to consume me, which transforms me into a completely new individual. It's the power to take a terrorist man named Saul who slayed Christians into an apostle who suffers for the gospel and becomes a church planner. Blows my mind. Blows my mind to think about. Here's food for thought. Saul is this, for God to demonstrate his love, Saul said, he, he called me out to demonstrate his love for all of you. He said, I was the sinner of sinners. I killed Christians. That was my occupation. When I would go in for a job, I'd write, I uh, killed Christians for the past 10 years. And, and I would get every job I wanted. That, that was his job. And he's saying, God drafted me to prove to you that there's nothing you can do that he won't forgive. There's nothing you can do to prevent yourself from being able to come back to God. He's saying he drafted me to prove that to you. So tonight, what I want to leave you with, what I want to bless you with, is, is the reality of, of Luke chapter 15. God is looking for nothing less than to come into relationship with you. He's not looking for you to change tonight, except in the direction you're going into a direction to run into him. He says, if you just start on the path to me, I'll meet you while you're a long way off. He said, just start coming towards me, and I'm going to catch up with you. He said, I'm not looking for a way to get you off the team, but I'm looking on a way to keep you and to remain with me for all eternity. Because my initial goal is to be with you to such a degree that we become one. Marriage is a reflection of the relationship God desires in us, him in us and us in him, one. So if you would, bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that your love is real, God, because that's what makes this, this message so powerful, God, not because it's just it's, it's, it's written in red letters in the Bible, 